Welcome to Evolution Impossible, a production of 3ABN Australia Television. Our host is Dr. Sven Estring with special guest Dr. John Ashton and our panel. Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Sven Estring. It has been great going on this Evolution Impossible journey together where we are leaving no stone unturned to find out whether Darwin's theory of evolution could actually work. I'm delighted to be able to welcome back Justin Trosen. Good to have you here. And we're very privileged uh, to have Melvin Sanderling, who has a Swedish-Dutch background. Now, Melvin, I reckon if we go back far enough, we could find a Swedish common ancestor. And also, we have Jean-Ray Roux, who is a pilot. Glad you could drop by. And always here to give us good answers for our questions is Dr. John Ashton. Thanks for being here. You know, figuring out the age of something in nature is not always an easy task. However, there is one dating method that scientists tell us is really simple and very reliable, and that is radiometric dating. It's like reading the time off clocks in the rocks. But does radiometric dating really tell us the true age of the rocks? That's what we're exploring today. Now, guys, I just want to ask you, how do you understand radiometric dating to actually work? <laughs> oh, look, you guys have it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a bit like, scared to say anything since in your introduction you said scientists say it's really simple. But when I read about it, I'm a bit confused. It has something to do with the decay, measuring certain decay in rocks and then dating the age and I would need some more explanation on it, actually. Excellent, John. Well, good to have you here. Can you fill in some of the details about how radiometric dating actually works? Yes. Well, there are materials that uh, we call radioactive, and that is they slowly emit uh, atomic particles of some type, and they actually, some of them change from one element into another element. So we call that the mother element changes into the daughter element and radioactive gamma rays and yes, particles that that's right neutrons mm. these sort of particles or maybe a beta particle an electron is, is emitted so what we can do is it it actually method involves very accurate chemical analysis of these isotopes now what an isotope is uh, an element is defined by the number of protons or positive charges in the nucleus uh, but it can have different masses which are dependent on the amount of neutrons in the nucleus. Mm. And so an element is defined, as I said, by the number of protons, but when it has different number of neutrons, we call that different isotopes. Mm. Now, when it has different numbers of neutrons, it may alter the stability, and when it's less stable, it emits these particles and what we call radioactive. And so uranium is one of the classic radioactive materials, one of the first discovered Mm. uh, that had these properties. And uh, so what uh, scientists do is by very accurately using mass spectrometers these days, uh, measure the amount of one particular isotope in, um, in the rock, and then they, uh, the, the parent isotope, and then they measure the amount of the daughter isotope. And in the meantime, they've measured the rate at which these elements have changed. So they've studied the radioactive material, 
over a period of time and they've measured what they call the half-life of the material. Okay. Now, this is a very important factor. This is the mathematical factor that is used to calculate the age. And so what it essentially is, is the time measured in years, usually, that it takes for half of the mother element to decay to the daughter element. Mm. And so if the half-life, say, was 5,000 years, after, then after 5,000 years, half of the radioactive material would de decay away. After another 5,000 years, another half of what remains has decayed mm. away. So we now only have a quarter of that material. So again, from chemical analysis and mathematical equations, we can calculate on that basis, assuming that uh, radiometric decay rates haven't changed, assuming that there's no leaching out of or removal of the mother uh, parent element or the uh, daughter element by some other means, it's only radiometric uh, decay, then we can calculate the age of that mm. particular rock that it's found in. Mm. So, so you're counting the, the parent, the, the mother um, isotope, you're counting the daughter and then you're putting it on the curve and out comes the date for the rock. Yes, that's right. And there's a mathematical formula in there, yes. Fantastic. Mm. Any questions on that process? Yeah, I was just wondering, like you mentioned a time of, for example, like 5,000 years. Mm. And in your book, you describe certain other numbers that can span like billions of years yeah. for half-life reactions. Mm. How do they come up with the, the times? Like, mm. how can you measure that it's 5,000 years? Yeah, of the mm. half-lives. Mm. How can you know that? Well, I'm not an expert on uh, atomic clocks, but I understand that they're, uh, with these atomic clocks that they, they can measure those particular half-lives. Mm. But that's an area I haven't actually explored the rate at which they, or the, the actual laboratory method of measuring those half-lives. Mm. But I have read the papers where they've noted that half-lives can change, for example. Mm -hmm. So under very high temperatures, okay. they measure different half-lives and also they measure different half-lives that appears in association with uh, different sunspot cycles and mm. this sort of thing, which is, which is very interesting. And there's mm. also the theory of uh, you can produce accelerated uh, nuclear decay. Mm. Uh, but anyway, that's a, that's a good point. I need to read up on the actual method, methodology that they use. Mm. Well, we do have very accurate uh, atomic clocks. In the olden days, they used to measure radiometric decay rates using Geiger counters, yes. which actually counted the, the number of particles. Mm. And so I guess uh, by integrating, if we count the number of particles over an hour very accurately... Um, and there are lots of particles involved, then we could actually calculate billions of years' ages. So I'm sure it's just a, a physical calculation problem, but I haven't actually entered into that. Mm. So it's fairly accurate, but it's really dependent on what kind of external circumstances could have influenced this half-life reaction over time. Yeah, so I, I imagine that the measurements of the rate of decay are actually quite accurate because mm. they're done in a controlled laboratory situation. We've got quite accurate machines now. Okay. What we can't control, of course, is the environment mm. that those rocks are in. They're out, they're out in nature. And also we can't control and we don't necessarily know what the conditions were in the past. Mm. And that's, mm. that's one of the big downfalls of radiometric dating in that we have 
to assume that none of the daughter element has leached away or that more of the daughter element has leached in, for example, also, right. you know, and the same with the mother. So these are physical processes. You have elements in rocks, you know, there's uh, uh, water and other fluids can be leaking through. Um, so yes, it's there's a lot of these here. Mm. Same thing with what we talked about last time, with, um, the sedimentary rates and the erosion rates. You don't, we don't know what happened in the past. Yes, mm. yes. Yeah. But, but they're still using the same erosion rates they're calculating or measuring That's for billions of years. Yeah. yeah. Mm. One of the ways they try to improve the accuracy of radiometric dating is a technique that um, has been used since the late 1980s and that's called the isochron dating method. So if, uh, the, the methods for that particular form of radiometric dating, we can only date volcanic rocks and the, the crystals in the volcanic rock often have, or sometimes have uh, uh, radioactive uh, elements in them. And there'll be different mineral crystals in the rock. And so those different crystals have different chemical compositions and so they'll be made up, they'll have different radioactive elements mm. in them. So one of the things we can do in a rock is analyse, separate out the different crystals and then individually analyse or date those different crystals in the one mm. rock mm. and then plot those together. And if Probably we get right. a pretty good straight line, in other words, the data from all the different crystals in the rock are matching up, mm. then that gives us fairly high mm. confidence. So that's the most accurate mm. method. That's called the isochron dating method. Mm. Are there any assumptions um, underlying the isochron method that we still need to be aware of? Oh, well, they're the same assumptions as, as before. Um, and you can get other problems too in that, for example, how do we know there aren't mixing of much older rocks with younger rocks mm. during, the, mm, during the molten mm. time, this sort of thing? Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, it is fraught with a whole lot of assumptions. And this is what people, I think, just generally don't realise. You know, OK, we've got this result in the, and we've got this measurement and people automatically assume that it's, it's mm. correct. Mm. One of the classic things that I like to point out is that radiometric dating methods have never been validated for prehistorical dates. Mm. Mm. We haven't so been actually able to validate the method, that the method is actually working. Mm -hmm. And this blows people's you know, minds away. I've actually written and pointed this out, you know, to sort mm. of fellow scientists. Mm. Because a lot of people think, okay, we get this result from a laboratory, um, it, it must be true. Mm. Well, in reality, chemical analysis is very different from that. You know, I, I can remember seeing the results from uh, government laboratory trials, or you know, sorry, government trials of laboratories where we were testing the accuracy of laboratories and uh, where um, samples had to be analysed by the leading analytical laboratories, and the results were widely mm. spread. Mm. And the, the sample was actually a known sample, and I think, I can't remember how many labs were involved, but there were dozens of laboratories involved. And I think there were only two or three out of those laboratories that got the actual accurate answer. Mm. So this is something we need to measure. There's two things. There's the performance of the laboratory, but there is also the method itself. Mm. And one of the things is that radiometric data method hasn't been validated. Mm -hmm. But you say prehistoric ages, so that's going back the millions and billions of years. Mm. But, but what about, I mean, science has been very active over the last 200 years. Mm -hmm. uh, so 
What about validating radiometric dating over that period? How has that worked? Oh, yes. Okay, so this really highlights the problems with radiometric dating, um, or one of, one, of the, one of the issues. And uh, perhaps what I should highlight before uh, I answer that is that typically when we date rocks, there are a number of different radiometric dating methods we use. We might use uh, samarium neodymium, uh, or potassium argon, or um, you know rubidium strontium mm. lead. We'll have a quiz on those lead. names later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and what often happens is, depending on the method that we use, which are all valid radiometric dating methods, we'll get widely different answers for the mm. same rock. That's very unusual. It is. So what generally happens is you have an age for a rock that is based on the fossil record ages that were based on estimates of uh, sedimentation rates and the thicknesses of those layers in which the fossils were laid, the physical thicknesses. And so they estimated the ages. And so this gives us what is known as the standard fossil age. Right? And that's the age that you'll find in the textbook. Now, if you find a rock that is associated with layers above or below of the fossils that we're finding, uh, that are listed there in, in the textbooks, and it might be, say, 200 million years. Um, and then when you start dating it, one method might give you 130 million years, another method might give you 250 million years, another method might give you 700 million years, another method might give you a billion years. So sort of pick your age. Well, what happens yeah. is when, when you're writing up your thesis, you say, well, I've got all these values there. 250 million years is closest to the fossil age of 200 or 220 million years. I'm going to put that in. Mm -hmm. So you record that result. Mm -hmm. And what is happening? But why aren't the other results considered? Why aren't the results that gave you a billion years? You know, usually uranium, lead uranium values, uh, uranium lead values will give you billions of years for most rocks. So, um, and this is one of the problems. Now, the, the other thing is when we, uh, and the, this has been done a number of times, when we radiometrically date rocks that we know the actual age from, so it's a volcanic eruption that occurred maybe 200 years ago, people observed it, they go and chip out the lava and take the sample to the lab. Um, these always come back as being dated hundreds of thousands to millions of years mm -hmm. old, even though we know the rock was <coughs> 200 right. years mm -hmm. old. And that's the mm. question that I had is when this, when different methods are being used with all those names that you pronounced that I, I won't try, yeah. um, but they give these different answers, like really different answers, but they use the same principle. It is dating that half-life time yeah, reaction. That's right. And if that is fairly accurate in itself, but the answers are so, they can differ billions of years, mm. where does that difference come from? Well, I'm not sure, but I think one of the, the things is that when you look at the half-lives of a lot of those systems that are used, those half-lives are billions of years. Mm. And, um, and so it, it seems to me very reasonable that you're going to get hundreds of millions of years as your answers. Mm. And I think the classic example of this was work that was done here uh, in Australia, uh, where uh, samples were taken from the eruptions from Mount Noahoe mm -hmm. in New Zealand and erupted in the late 1940s, early 1950s. 
And when those samples were analysed at the um, at the uh, one of the geo uh, science uh, laboratories at the Australian National University uh, here in Australia, the uh, samples gave ages from memory ranging from about 130 million years, 300 million years, and I think three and a half thousand mm. million years for rocks that we knew were 50 years old. Well, the analyses mm. were done in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Mm. So at that stage, the rocks were only 50 years old, mm. and yet they all gave more than 100 million years uh, by different wow. methods wow. by mm. one of the best um, mm. uh, you know, radiometric dating laboratories in Australia. But what about yeah. the idea that <clears throat> the, the, ro <clears throat> the rocks might be 50 years old, but the, the chemical composition, the, the very... Um, the material might have been very old. Um, would that play, play into this calculation at all? Well, it, it could do, but it, what it means is that um, it's useless in dating any rock, isn't it? Mm. If rocks that are only 50 years old date as millions of years old, and you pick up another rock sample and you get some millions of, How old is it? Is it mm. millions of years old? Is it 50 years old? And the thing is, that isn't just an isolated e example. If you go to the standard, uh, you know, some of the uh, standard uh, radiometric dating textbooks, they cite mm. these examples of where Hawaiian lava flows were being dated and, and so forth. Mm. And again, uh, the standard explanation is, well, somehow there was some sampling errors or somehow there was sort of some mixing. Mm. You know, it, um, uh, you know, of the magma or something like that. Mm. But what the ratios were that God originally created, mm. you know, we don't know. It Really, it, it doesn't match. And when we compare that with erosion rates and all these other factors we can see, it virtually wipes out radiometric mm. dating. Now, one of the things that often happens in you know, the general popular thinking, if I could put it that way, is that as soon as you hear radiometric dating, you think carbon-14 dating. All right. Uh, but they're actually, they're, they're the same class of dating method, but they're quite different and there's some misunderstandings about carbon-14 dating. Can you just um, enlighten us on that topic? Yes, okay. So carbon-14 dating is another dating method that actually doesn't, uh, it works on a, on a different principle. In other words, the radiometric dating, we calculate the age. But <clears throat> carbon-14 dating uh, depends on so many variables that it itself has to be calibrated by some secondary method. So how carbon-14 dating works is this, that in the atmosphere, we, uh, well, the upper atmosphere is hit by cosmic rays coming from outer space, which are charged high-energy particles. Yeah. They collide with atoms up in uh, the outer space area and generate high energy neutrons. Some of those high energy neutrons then hit a nitrogen nucleus. So nitrogen's one of the gases in the atmosphere there. And it <coughs> has uh, seven protons and seven neutrons. And what happens is sometimes those high energy neutrons knock a proton out of the nucleus, leaving only six protons, which changes that nitrogen to carbon. It very quickly reacts with oxygen before it becomes carbon dioxide. Mm. But that is now carbon-14. Normally carbon is 12, six mm. protons six and six neutrons. But now it's carbon-14 and it's unstable. And it has a half-life of 5,730 years. And so after 5,000 years, we'll only have half the level. 
after, or five and a half thousand years, after 11,000 a bit years, we'll have only a quarter of the level. After 15,000 years, we'll only have an eighth of the level. So by measuring the amount of carbon-14 that we have, we can back calculate the age of things. Now, carbon-14 is very good for dating the actual fossils because they have carbon in them. Mm. So we can date the actual fossils right. that way. Mm. And, uh, but the thing is, um, we measure back in 1950, they standardised the level of carbon-14 in the atmosphere. Well, since then, it's been changing. We've mm. had a lot more carbon dioxide come up, whether which is diluting it. The other thing is that the Earth's magnetic field repels a lot of the cosmic rays. Mm. And so the amount of carbon-14 that is present in the atmosphere depends on that carbon-14 flux anyway. Mm. In the past, we know the Earth's magnetic field has been decaying. It's decayed about uh, 10% in the last 150 years, 6.5% since 1900, for example. And it's, so in the past, a stronger magnetic field would have repelled more cosmic rays, which means lower levels of carbon-14, which gives us artificially longer ages if we base it on the current level, which is what we do. do. Now, how it works is that when a plant is alive, it's taking in the carbon dioxide and there's an equilibrium at the same level of carbon-14 as in the plants in the atmosphere. But when it dies or it's buried in the same with an animal, the, there's no more interchange with carbon-14, so what's there begins to decay. Mm. And so the, it will have a lower level over time, mm. and so that's how they calculate the age. Mm. But it's very interesting because after about 100,000 years, there would be no detectable carbon-14 left. Mm. Mm. So if we find carbon-14 in something, it means it's mm. got to be quite Less young. Than yeah, got, years yeah. old. Mm. Interesting, interesting. Mm. And I think you mentioned in your book uh, that uh, the... There were some diamonds taken from the De Beers mine in the southern part of Africa, yeah. and that uh, these were carbon-14 dated, I think it was. Yeah. They're estimated to be between one and three million years old, but like you mentioned, if um, they had carbon in them, they have to be, what, less than, how old was it, 100,000? Mm. Yes, well, that, well that, that's right. And that's a, a very interesting example because diamonds were meant to have formed when the continents formed under intense heat and pressure. Mm. And they're meant to be uh, one and a half to three billion years old. Mm. So very, so it should have absolutely none. Wow. And of course, they began finding carbon-14 in diamonds and this was seriously mm. challenged. And so uh, some very accurate studies were done at uh, the University of California, Los Angeles campus from memory, uh, using one of the most accurate mass spectrometers in the world mm. and sure enough carbon 14 was there in mm. diamonds and so oh. that is powerful evidence mm. that the continents can't be that old and, and now of course they've carbon 14 dated dinosaur remains and the same thing mm. they all and sometimes they come out at around you know 20 or thirty thousand years mm. and people say oh, well that's still a lot older than the bible dates but that is just the straight age date we haven't corrected for the lower values of mm, the mm, um, mm. Uh, caused by the lower cosmic ray flux in the past. Mm. Mm, so that mm. one of the things that, that there's there's Christians in the world today who who say you know we want to believe in the Bible because it's changed our lives, made such a big difference, but also science has been so 
uh, transformative in our society as well. And we want to integrate those two. And we, uh, we would head towards something like theistic evolution, where, where God supervised or guided the process of evolution. Well, what's your thoughts on this concept or proposal of theistic evolution? Well, I guess there's two aspects. You can have the theological aspect that it certainly doesn't fit with the concept of sin and death that the Bible talks about. Mm. But the other problem is, why are they doing that? Why do they believe that the earth is is so old? And I think it's because they've been inculcated with this idea mm. from radiometric dating of the long mm. ages. Mm. But you, you're just bowing the knee to a false science then. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we have so much evidence now that the earth can't be those hundreds of millions of years ages mm. that the radiometric dating results give us. Mm. We know for, well, for classically from erosion rates. We know from the soft tissue in dinosaurs. There's so many things that are pointing to this young age. And the fact then that we can find carbon-14 in, in coal and so forth. So to me, this whole concept of theistic evolution that God had to bow the knee to evolution and produce it solely over time just doesn't fit the scientific data. Plus, why does God need to do that? He said he's spoken into existence. And the other problem, too, that we often forget is that evolution has major problems in terms of ecology, Mm. as we've talked about, in that you need the insects and the flowering plants need one another. There's a whole lot of ecological balance. The ecosystems, yeah. And it doesn't follow the lines of the evolutionary, you know, phylogenic trees. Mm. So you're going to be, they're caught out. They're caught out with science and they're caught out, in my view, with theology as well, what, what the Bible actually says. Do you have any further questions on this topic of radiometric dating and theistic evolution? Well, what you're saying with it's just the mindset of people thinking there's millions of years. Does that sort of co- correlate with the biblical, um, the biblical account of creation where they say evening and morning, or well, the Bible says evening and morning was the first day, but they claim that it was millions or thousands of years uh, time period that passed? Well, no, time is a fascinating thing, Mm. (laughs) as we have mentioned just briefly. But no, there were 24-hour Earth days, Mm. and the whole universe was created in that time because if you look at Genesis 2.1, it says, then God was finished, and, you know, the whole host of them had Mm. been created then. And we talk about God spoke things into, into existence, and um, to me, that's very reasonable. You know, I think a classic example of this is um, let's do an experiment live on television <laughs> and uh, move your little finger. Can you move your little finger? Right. OK. Does your brain have mass? You can weigh your brain, can't you? Yep. Mm. Yeah. Can you weigh your thoughts? No. No. How did you move your little finger? <laughs> your thoughts, your thoughts are non-material, mm. but they affected this material world. Mm. God is spirit. He's non-material. Why can't he just mm. create matter and affect the universe? Mm. If our non-material thoughts, our consciousness mm. can affect electrical impulses in our brain, affect nerves and muscles. Mm. And, and through our thoughts, we can create things ourselves. Mm. We can create a poem. You know, we can create a mobile phone. Mm. You know, surely mm. God can create mm. so much bigger. just like yeah. that. Speak it into it. It makes more scientific sense than all this evolution rubbish. Mm. Mm. 
It's amazing, really amazing to think about radiometric dating can be so wildly wrong. And if our planet Earth is not billions of years old, but only a few thousand years, that would mean that evolution simply does not have enough time to occur. So that means that evolution is impossible. Now, I realize that that could be quite a confronting idea to you. And so I encourage you to get a copy of Dr. John Ashton's book, Evolution Impossible, and work through all of the lines of evidence that he describes in the book. If evolution really didn't happen, could this mean that there's a God out there who originally created this world and loves you? Hang on to that thought as we journey back in time in our next episode to the Big Bang itself. And if you missed any previous programs, you can watch them on our website, 3abinaustralia.org.au. We look forward to seeing you again back at the Big Bang. for joining us on Evolution Impossible, a production of 3ABN Australia Television. If you have any comments or questions, send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au or call us within Australia on 024973 3456. We'd love to hear from you.